Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. What a special edition this is. I'll get to that in a minute. The music you hear by one Sam Brandt, my talented musical son. And this is presented, as always, by betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Their exclusive partner of Podcast One. Use the promo code Podcast One. Get that 50% sign-up bonus. Bet online. No rant of the week. We're going to get right to it. The Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, we are in the heart of it. And we have just seen episodes 5 and 6, next week 7 and 8, leading up to the finale of 9 and 10. What a documentary it is. It really shows us a look inside Michael Jordan that we've never seen before. Well, someone who has had that look for 36 years is my former boss, David Falk. David was and was Michael's only agent and still his close friend, had to divest from being his agent when, of course, Michael became owner of the Hornets because David still represents players. He has unique insights to Michael that no one has. David was my boss, taught me a lot about the business, one of those people in life that was a foundational piece to my career, and I give him so much credit and my gratitude to him. And my more recent gratitude is for coming on this podcast. This is part one of a two-part series with David. This is the early years of Michael Jordan, the relationship with Michael coming out of college at University of North Carolina, the relationship with Dean Smith, John Thompson. We talk about Patrick Ewing and my experiences there. We talk about representing Michael early years and, of course, going out to Nike and doing that landmark deal with Nike and Air Jordan and coming up with the Air Jordan concept, all the things involved in the early years of Michael Jordan, the early parts of the documentary. Without further ado, my special guest for this first part of a two-part series, David Falk. Welcome to the podcast, my friend, my mentor, David Falk. Great pleasure to be with you, Andrew. I'm sure you're busy these days (laughs) with the last dance (laughs) on everyone's mind. I knew you've been doing a lot of talking, a lot of podcasting, a lot of great interviews about this. I guess I want to start with how it all began. And some of this was mentioned in the documentary. But you went to North Carolina and met Coach Smith. And I think a lot of people don't know sort of how agents get players. And it's obviously different today. And it's, sometimes it's dirty. Sometimes it's not. If you want to take us behind getting Michael, and this is, of course, before I knew you, I believe in 1984. Correct. Well, first, as you said, it it really has changed. I mean, it's sort of like if you do B.C. and A.D. in the agent world, I would say B.C. is pre-1995 when the union put in a wage scale for the rookies and sort of neutered the ability of agents to differentiate themselves based on the negotiating ability. Pre-95, I started in this business when I was in law school, uh, in my second year of law school, um, working for free for Donald Dell. A lot of a lot of my friends thought that I worked for free the entire 17 years I was there. It wasn't quite free. It was, as you know, the wages weren't exactly uh, – it was a little bit higher than a busboy and lower than a you know, government worker. But, um, right. Uh, so pre, pre-95 – at most of the major basketball programs, certainly in the East, at at North Carolina with Coach Dean Smith, at Duke with Coach Mike Krzyzewski, Georgetown with John Thompson, Kansas with Roy Williams, at Indiana with Bobby Knight, and Rick Pitino at Louisville and Kentucky. The coaches would tell the four or five best agents in the country, um, 
look, I don't want any recruiting. And when they said any, they meant any. So like if you know, they would, I'm just being comical here. Like if Dean was sort of think, David, if you tell me that you happen to be in Wilmington, North Carolina, Michael's hometown, and you bumped into his mother, Dolores, at the supermarket, you're off the list. You know, don't tell me it was inadvertent. You didn't know she was going to be. If you have any contact whatsoever with a player, you're off the list. So then the coaches were divided the top four or five groups. And this still early in the agent business. There were no octagons and Wassermans and, you know, CAAs and these enormous companies, William Morris. And most of the, most of the, most of the top agents were on their own. There's Bob Wolf in Boston, who you know well. Uh, Larry Fleischer, who had founded the NBA Players Association. Um, and then there was our company, ProServe, which in 83 split into two parts, into Octagon, what is now called Octagon, and ProServe. So we went down to meet uh, Michael and his parents and Coach, and Coach Smith in his office. And by 84, we had represented in a row Tom Lagarde, who was the ninth pick in 1977. Phil Ford, who was the National Player of the Year in the second pick in 1978. Dudley Bradley, who was the 13th pick in 1979. Michael O'Corn, who was the first freshman ever to start in Carolina, who was the sixth pick at 80. Al Wood, who was the fourth pick at 81. And James Worthy, who was the first pick at 82. And so the players, they were all friendly. They all came back to Chapel Hill in the summer to play in here. So they sort of knew the drill, what they would call the drill. They said, you're going to meet the part, the head senior guy in the firm whose name is Donald L. He's going to do your first contract. Then you're going to meet this young bald guy named David Falk, and he's going to do all the peripheral stuff. He's going to help you with cars and insurance and you know, shoe deals and stuff. And then after Donald Fish's first deal, they called him the ghost. Uh, you'll never see him again. And this guy Falk's going to do all the rest of your stuff. So by the time we met Michael, he probably, through his friendships with these former players, probably knew as much or more about our operation as we did about you know about him. And um, Coach Smith recommended us. I mean, Coach Smith was like the Pope. If he recommended you or suggest what he would say, suggested to the parents that you'd be a good match, you'd get the player. And if he suggested that you weren't, you wouldn't get the player. It didn't matter what, how well you thought you did in the presentation. So Coach Smith suggested to Michael that we would be good to go with. Now, the interesting thing that happened with Michael is that by this time, 1984, I'd been there 10 years. The firm had split up. I was now running a division right before I hired you called Team Sports. I didn't know much about tennis. You were a tennis player, a good tennis player. You played at Stanford. Uh, I was a recreational tennis player at best. Uh, but I loved basketball. It was my favorite. And, and I loved watching football. So Donald, we signed Michael. And Donald did Michael's first deal with, um, with the not with Jerry Reidsdorf, but with the first owner of the Bulls who, who preceded him. And he didn't ask me, hey, what, let's do it together like we did every other deal. He want, This is Michael. And he, his ego demanded that he do it by himself. So he got Michael a five-year contract which Dean wasn't particularly thrilled with. So he went back and added on two option years, non-guaranteed at a million one and a million three, which sounded like a lot of money back then because Magic had just gotten a million a year. 
but they weren't guaranteed. They were options. And so for the rest of Michael's career until 1996, he was always behind the eight ball with his contract because he had signed such a long deal at, at modest money at best. Um, and you know, that's, that's how the Michael Jordan representation started. So after that contract, every other deal Michael ever did for the rest of his career, you know, his active career, I did. And he enabled me as a lawyer who had zero training in marketing to sort of use my imagination, spread my wings and make movies like Space Jam and Jordan to the Max uh, to do car dealerships, restaurant chains, I mean, uh, fragrances. You know, I did things that I could never have remotely imagined in law school that I'd be involved with. Um, and I had never been involved with, with any other client. So it was um, an amazing ride, a great honor. You know, if you think about it, and obviously you worked for a long time in the agent business before you got into management, you know, yeah. there's never been a basketball agent in the Hall of Fame, Andy. And I doubt there ever will be a basketball agent in the Hall of Fame. But to me, representing Michael for his entirety of his career is probably a bigger honor than getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. It was amazing. And I'm going to get back to it in a second. I want to pick up on something you said about Coach Smith and the Pope and <laughs> players listened. I didn't see it as much at North Carolina, but being in Washington with you and Georgetown, I just want to digress for a second. It was amazing to me, your relationship and our relationship because of that with Georgetown and John Thompson, because I know what the recruiting world is like, both in basketball and football for the top guys. And I just will never forget being in the office one day. And I think it was Reggie Williams or David Wingate or some star from Georgetown gets off the elevator. And I said, can I help you? He said, well, coach said, come over and sign some papers. <laughs> and I said, what do you, what do you mean? Like, what do you, like he would be the highest recruited player, like a Reggie Williams fourth pick in the draft. And like every agent's trying to get him. And he says, yeah, coach said, sign some papers. <laughs> and I said, what? Like, like to sign with us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said, okay. you know, and I remember, I remember this line and you can expound where John Thompson would say to people that accused him about that. He said, well, I would recommend my dentist to them too. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So it, you know, so very you bring up a really interesting dynamic between John Thompson and Dean Smith, who were very, very good friends. John was the assistant coach on the Olympic team in 1976 in Montreal that Dean Smith coached to a gold medal, and John had been the guardian of a of a player named Donald Washington who went to Carolina. That's how they met and formed a really mm. good friendship. And Dean Dean was a very cerebral guy. And he gave John a lot of tips early in his career about the, not about the X's and O's of coaching, but the administrative parts of coaching and the politics of coaching. But the biggest difference between John and Dean, in my opinion, is that Dean was somewhat of a patrician. You know, he was literally probably the dean of college coaches back then. And he demanded, even though I was running basketball, that Donald come to every meeting. If Donald and I were together today, and it's been you know, many, many years since I'm almost 20 years, uh, almost 30 years since I've been on my own. He, 
he would demand that Donald come. That was just his his ego demanded he wanted to deal with the with the chairman. John, by contrast, because he was an underdog uh, and he was an African American man who had faced a lot of barriers in his life, he rooted for the underdog. So when Patrick Ewing you know, who's by far his biggest player ever, probably the biggest player in Georgetown, one of the biggest right. players in the NBA, one of the biggest players in the history of college basketball. When he came out, he invited me over without Donald, and we signed Patrick. And when we went to meet the Knicks in the very first meeting, which were owned by a big corporation, I knew that politically it was important to have Donald come, not for John, but for Gulf and Western. And the day before we left, I mentioned to John, I said, you know, we're going to New York tomorrow. He said, what do you mean we? Who's we? I said, you know, Donald. And I said, he said, I don't want Donald to go. I didn't pick Donald to represent Patrick Ewing. I picked you. I said, John, I really appreciate that more than I could ever express. But, um, you know, this is a corporation and certain protocols. If you know John, I said, I don't give a damn about that shit. And I said, look, I, I love you for that. I love your support. But if I'm going to coach this process and negotiate the deal, you've got to let me coach the game. And I, I brought Donald and Donald really didn't add very much, you know, to, to the meetings. Um, I could tell you, I, if we have time, it's a great story. So Patrick, as you know, was the very first lottery player in the history of the NBA. They changed the rules, created the draft lottery in 1985 and the seven teams out of 23 that didn't make the playoffs went to the lottery. The Knicks won the lottery. And I started thinking to myself, wow, this is a very unique situation. You have the richest team in the league who have won a total of 46 games over the past two years. They've been a disaster. Wins the right to draft Patrick Ewing, who's going to be the savior of the franchise. What's appropriate to ask for? Now, the previous two years, the number one pick had been special players. In 83, had been Ralph Sampson, who's a 7-4 center. Uh, he got $960,000 a year for four years. And in, 80, in 84, Michael's year, Akeem Olajuwon was the number one pick, who was a phenomenally talented guy from the University of Houston. And he signed a deal for $1.2 million a year for six years. So I, everywhere I went, cars, planes, you know, buses, I'm thinking about what to ask for Patrick. And finally, I came up with an idea. And I wrote myself a memo, myself. And I, you know, what my ideas were. So one day, Donald calls me in his office and said, hey, I want to ask you a question. Have you given any thought to what you could ask the Knicks for Patrick Ewing? I said, have I given any thought? It's about the only thing I've thought about, <laughs> you know, for, for the last month. You know, this is like, this is my breakthrough. John's picked me and, you know, it's my breakthrough. And of course, Donald, because of his ego, thought that everybody picked the company because of, you know, his reputation. And so, um, so I walked into his office and I showed him the memo where we were going to ask the Knicks for now at the time, the highest played player player in the history of the NBA was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's making exactly $2 million a year for four years. And in my memo, I proposed to ask the Knicks for a 10 year deal for $3 million a year. So Donald reads the memo and almost starts laughing. And he said, gosh, I would give anything to be the New York Knicks when you walk into the office and ask me for $30 million for a rookie. I said, really? What, what would you say? So what would I say? You know, he said, I'd say, when you stop smoking, whatever you've spoken, you know, come see me. I'm not even going to make a counter. This offer is so 
outrageous, so outside the scope of anything you know normal that um, you know just come back. I said, really okay. He said, what would you say if I told you that? I said, look, you know, Mr. New York Knicks, I totally understand your position. You've had two amazing back-to-back years where you won 22 games and 24 games. <laughs> and you can explain to the fans of New York why the richest team in the league, owned by Gulf and Western, this enormous conglomerate, can't afford to pay the first-ever lottery pick enough money. So he'll, he's going to go back to Georgetown and get a graduate degree and go back into the draft next year. And you could explain to the fans why you couldn't sign them. And so <laughs> it, to me, Andy, and you obviously you worked with both of us. Donald yep. was a pioneer in the seventies and he was, you know, sort of stuck in the eighties I and mean, he sort of passed his pot time, didn't have a lot of imagination in these deals. And he was just going to go in and ask for a little bit more than what Olajuwon got. So yeah. we go up to New York for the first meeting and like he had tipped the Knicks off. I make the first offer, offer them 30 million for 10 years. And they basically say, David, you must be on something you're not supposed to be on. Like, and so in the middle of the meeting, now let me, let me just backtrack a second. So six weeks out before the draft is when the lottery takes place. The Knicks won the lottery. Dave DeBusher, you remember, pumped his fist. Right. And the Knicks won. The next day or two days later, I get a call from a guy I'd never heard of who was like the head of marketing for Madison Square Garden named Jim Trecker. And he called me up because he wanted to know if I would give the Knicks permission. They said, we're going to definitely draft Patrick. I mean, there's zero chance we're not going to draft Patrick. Can we have permission to start right now and put his picture on the season ticket brochure for next year? And I thought he was just laughing, pulling my leg. This was a joke. I mean, why on earth would you want to start selling? And so I said, sure. So in the middle of the meeting, when we hit this, this, you know, impasse over the $30 million deal. The Knicks were basically laughing at me. Who walks in unannounced, but Jim Trecker. <laughs> and he had to tell, he had to tell something to the, you know, to, to Crumpy, who was the head guy. And so I said, excuse me, like, who is that guy? And they said, oh, that's Jim Trecker. I said, oh, Jim, come back here for a second. Let me ask you a question. H- how are the season ticket sales doing? Oh, I said, God, David, they're doing phenomenal. In the last seven weeks, we've sold $6 million of new season tickets. So I said, really? Oh, that's so interesting. So I said to, I said to Crumpy, to Jack Crumpy, you know, you know, you're right. I think 3 million probably is a little bit unnormal. I mean, we should be asking you for 8 million, 6 million for the season tickets that he's already <laughs> delivered and the 2 million that he's probably worth as, as a player. And so, and so it was just, and the point of telling the story is that, you know, John, John Thompson, who I love, you know, is one of my dearest friends, Literally my, literally, my hero of life. I mean, he's probably had more of an impact on me than any other man, including my own father. I've learned so much from him about human nature and just a, a lot of different things. He's just so bright. And he empowered me um, and changed my career because he, he didn't require that I be the number two guy anymore. So, okay, you've been an assistant coach long enough. In my book, you're the head coach. Now, let me give you the sequel to the story. It's a great story. A year later, we got invited to meet Johnny Dawkins, who's the national player of the year from Duke, who went to high school at Nacken in Washington. And Dahl couldn't go. And so as a final word of encouragement, he says to me, look, I can't make it. Like, don't fuck this up. Just make sure that we can have a follow-up meeting in Washington, which is a great way to you know, give you confidence. So I mm-hmm. went down there, and they had a screening committee who they set up with uh, – 
John Weistart, you know, is the famous law professor in sports law, Coach K, like the head of the B school, and I think Chris Kennedy. And I was there. It was the first. I joined you. It yeah. was the first. Right. It was the first meeting they ever had. It was one of the worst meetings they ever had because they, you know, you try to say, let's talk about the draft. And some guys say, oh, excuse me. Uh, what do you think about intangible depreciation on real estate investments? <laughs> and then you talk about, and like after like 10 minutes, I'm looking at John and it was done. He was just done. He was bored. You know, it had no flow to the meeting and he really didn't want to come back and visit us, but he wanted to go with advantage, which it became octagon, but they had signed Lonnie bias and Mike, who we had never had a client at Duke ever. Mike thought that he should at least take a second meeting. So he comes up to Washington and meets with us in Donald's office. Now, at the time, I had a young Jamaican secretary, you may remember her name, Andrea yes. Person. Mm-hmm. She's about 22 years old. And I gave her a standing order that if Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, John Thompson, or Mike Krzyzewski ever calls, don't put them on hold. Don't tell them not there. Find me. Let, me. let me decide if I want to take the call. So we're in the office with Donald meeting Johnny Dawkins. And John Thompson calls me to take me to lunch. And my secretary's in a dither because two of the people on this list of four, John Thompson calls on the phone and Mike Krzyzewski's in the office. She just, she, she panics. She doesn't know what to do. And so she tells John, gosh, coach, you know, David's in a meeting with coach K. Like, what do you want me to do? He said, oh, no, nothing. And I didn't know he called. I'm in the meeting. We're trying to, trying to repair the damage from the meeting at Duke. And all of a sudden, without any warning, I would say there was a knock on it. There was a crash on the door. <laughs> and John Thompson walks in with Mary Fenlon and he goes right to Johnny, sees Johnny and he, you know, knew Johnny from, you know, the kid was elementary school at the boys club. Yeah. And he says, Johnny, how you doing? Johnny said, fine, sir. How you doing? Great. He says hello to Mike. And he turns to Johnny and points to me and said, this is my guy. I love this guy. If you go with him, he'll really take care. He'll do a great job. Promise you won't go wrong. He turns to doll and he points at me. He said, this guy, I don't like this guy. Like, fuck this guy. <laughs> and he walks out. That was that's all he said. And I was like beyond embarrassed. I turned to Mike Krzyzewski. This is our first ever Duke guy with trying to sign. And I said, Coach, um, I promise you, I had zero idea that John was coming in. This is sort of embarrassing. And he looks at me like, like I'm crazy. And he goes, David, you don't have to apologize. There's not a human being alive that could have induced John Thompson to do what he just did if he didn't want to do it. I mean, I know John, you know, John's not a wallflower and yeah. that cemented the deal. And we got, was our first two clients. So, so John has been an amazing supporter of mine. You're right. And he recommended us to virtually every player at Georgetown, except two, you know, the entire time, you know, that he was there. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's been amazing. So, I mean, having Michael and Patrick back to back and two years before James Worthy, and you sprinkle in James Lofton, Chris Dolan, and Boomer Siasen, and Johnny Dawkins. Like I had, we had an amazing run between '82 and '86 that probably never had again. Yeah, it's so interesting. And we'll get back to Michael, but just on the Thompson thing, a couple things that really shocked, sort of impressed me to no end. And I don't know if I shared all this with you, but there was a time in my first year or two where I was doing stuff for Patrick Ewing. And everyone talked about the brooding and ogreish Patrick Ewing. He's mean and he's, you know, seven footer. Nobody likes Goliath. I came home one night. I had a message on my machine. We had a machine back then. <laughs> Andrew, 
Andy. Uh, this is, no, I think he might have said, Mr. Brandt, this is Patrick Ewing. I just had a real quick question. I'm really sorry to bother you. It won't take more than a minute, and I hope you're having a good evening. You can call me anytime tomorrow. <laughs> and I saved that message. I'm like, oh, my God, that's Patrick Ewing. And I think I was doing something for the family and his brother and immigration, perhaps. But I'll never forget that. What a kind person he was for the, the image that people put on him. And the other part of that is John, this, this guy that had such an influence on your career. You let me handle some of the guys like a David Wingate. And David sure. had some issues, <laughs> was getting in trouble. And John would call me to periodically check in. What do you do this time? What do you do? And I remember John Thompson walking into my office. And everyone knows how imposing he is. Standing at my desk. And I'm like, oh, my God, what, what did I do? <laughs> and he said to me, you listen to me. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is this? I don't want you to spend one more second worrying about that boy. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? No, do not spend one more second worrying about that boy, Wingate. Not one. You understand me? I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You do his contract, whatever you need to do, but you do not spend one second worrying about that boy. I said, okay. Because well, he was disappointed. Because he was disappointed that David didn't follow the lessons he learned at school, and he was, right. and he was, you know, not being a good representative of the program. And he was, he was, he's amazing that way. He just, just, just a very, very interesting guy. But let's get back. I want, I want to pick up on yeah. something you said because it's a, it's a great segue into the documentary. So when you talked about Patrick having this image as a thug and a tough guy, and you know. He's a teddy bear. I mean, that's why right. I call him a teddy bear. My kids, my daughter, Dana, grew up with his son, Patrick Jr. They were like, they were literally to the day, 15 months apart. They used to play on the Jordan Jammer in the basement and whatever, yeah. you know, when they were like, you know, five years old, five or six years old. And and Patrick is like part of the family. I mean, my kids love Patrick Ewing, yeah. and as do I. And and so the point, the point of the story is that, you know, the average fan, you go to a game, you know, if you go to a basketball game, you have 18, 20,000 people. You go to a football game, you may have 75,000 people at Redskin Park. And you watch the game, you don't, you're probably not sitting, you know, courtside or at the 50. And you go home and you've had a great time. And, and your image of the players is what you see on the field. Right. But you and I, having worked with the players, you know what they're like when they take the uniform off. They only have the uniform on for a couple of hours a day. So Patrick Ewing on the court is intense. He's physical, incredibly hard worker, but that's not who he is as a human being for 22 hours a day. He's a, he's a sweetheart. He's amazingly respectful. He's polite. He's a great friend. He's got a great sense of humor. He's not remotely shy. People think he's shy. He's not shy at all. Right. It's funny. And I think the documentary shows you the side of Michael Jordan that the fans never see when he leaves the court and goes to the locker room, takes his uniform off. And they see him particularly, not so much in the early years, because there's not a lot of behind-the-scenes footage of the early years. The behind-the-scenes footage is in this last year, in the quest for championship number six, after Jerry Krause incredibly announces before the season that if his coach goes undefeated, which has never happened in the history of basketball, that he's not going to be back next year. And... I think it's a very interesting look at the 
sort of the psychological makeup of Michael Jordan, what he did to get himself psyched up, what he did to inspire his teammates, what he did to inspire his coach, you know, and how he took this band of sort of a raggedy band of players. I mean, when they talk in the documentary, this is the greatest team of all time. As far as performance, maybe, but as far as personnel, like zero chance that this is remotely close to the greatest team of all time. And I want to tell you why. So this is like mid nineties. Okay. Best players, Jordan, second best players, Pippen, third best players, Rodman. Okay. Then you, the centers are Bill Weddington, Dickie Simpkins, Luke Longley. You know, you go to the teams that the Celtics and the Lakers had 10 years earlier in the mid eighties. Okay. Lakers had Jabbar, Magic and Worthy. Then they had Byron Scott, Michael Cooper. Their ninth guy on that team was Bob McAdoo, who won four NBA scoring titles. Right. The Celtics, their arch rivals, had Bird, Parrish, and McHale, three Hall of, Hall of Famers, top 50 players of all time. Backcourt was Danny Ainge and Dennis Johnson, one of the great defenders in NBA history. They had Scott Wedman, ML Carr. Their ninth guy was a guy named Bill Walton who made, made the one of the greatest centers in NBA history. Bill Walton would have made any center that the Bulls ever had look like a, a JV player in, in, in ninth grade. And, and so what Mike, Michael took this raggedy band of guys and he brought them together and they won. And the documentary, he did this for the second three-peat. He comes back for baseball in 1994 in, on March, let's say 13th, I think it was the date when they played the Pacers. And he's 31 years old. He's a really smart guy. He knows at best he's got three to five years in his prime. He's not going to be able to jump over a 20-year-old player when he's 39 years old. And time's running out. And so he didn't have time for distractions, excuses, you know, guys who had headaches or sprained ankles. He had to win like now. This is the future, as our famed Washington Redskins football coach here is telling you to say, the freaking yeah. future is now. And and the intensity that he brought to the film was a reflection of the fact that he knew that the sand was running out of the hourglass. And if he didn't win now, that was it. You know, when we Early years, Jordan, what people don't realize, everyone knows Jordan now, and now they're seeing him at the height of his powers. You taught me about marketing Michael Jordan, and just at the early days of Nike, he was not the marketing phenomenon where you could just call up a national deal. I remember there was some Chicagoland Chevy stuff, there was some Chicago sure. stuff, but I... I think at the time there were only a couple African American athletes with national deals, maybe Dr. J, maybe Walter Payton. So I think what we did, especially you, is sort of open up this new national marketing athlete, African American athlete, that really people don't believe it now, but that wasn't a thing back then. Well, first of all, in 1984, you know, the salary cap came into the NDA in 1982 because the prevailing feeling amongst advertising executives on Madison Avenue was the NBA had two really terrible problems. One, there was rampant drug use, primarily marijuana, but certain level of cocaine. 
and two, they thought the league was too black, and they didn't think that that the you know people in Iowa would, would accept the sport that was primarily black. That wasn't my opinion. That was the opinion of people on Madison Avenue. And as a result of that, I mean, the NBA Finals, when Magic Johnson won the MVP, the Finals were on tape delay. They weren't right. even live. The, the championship. And so um, Magic Johnson, who I think had a Hall of Fame career in the 12-month period or 15-month period, between winning the NCAA title in 1979 over Larry Bird, becoming rookie of the year with the Lakers, called rookie of the year with Larry Bird, goes into the NBA finals and Kareem is hurt. They play magic at center. I think he had like 37 and 17 or something, you know, shot a baby hook, wins the MVP, league championship, rookie of the year. I mean, if he stopped playing after one year, the guy had a Hall of Fame career. He had one national commercial for mm. one year with seven up in his first five years. This is Magic Johnson. Larry Bird had none. Dr. J had none. Walter Payton might have had some in 83 after the Bears won the championship. You know, but the Bulls didn't win a championship till 91. So when Michael came out, not one person except Nike, except the shoe companies, called up and said we're interested in signing them. And when we called companies like McDonald's, particularly McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Chevrolet, the idea of signing a team sport athlete on a team that hadn't won anything, you know, who happened to be African-American, they would sort of whisper, Dad, what are we going to, how are we going to use this guy? And I was so, gosh, you know, when I go to McDonald's, I see a lot of African-American people at McDonald's. Arthur Ashe, who I was the junior agent for, right. used to tell me all the time, one of his great concerns was that the African-American diet had so much fat and, you know, fast food, french fries, that people were getting diabetes and dying of heart conditions. And so we had to pound these companies, Andrew, that we had relationships with from tennis, from Jimmy Connors or Gabriella Sabatini or Yvonne Lundell or Tracy Austin, whoever, you know, to, to even take a look at Michael. And his first deal with McDonald's, <laughs> it's a funny story, his first deal we signed him in two markets, Chicago land, the greater Chicago area for 25,000 and the state of North Carolina for another 25,000 mm. for each year for two years. When the first round of the McDonald's deal was up and we went to renew it, the woman who ran North Carolina didn't want to renew the deal. And I said, really, why? And she goes, David, I just don't even have a clue to how to use Michael Jordan is playing in Chicago, you know, to promote the sales of McDonald's products in North Carolina. And <laughs> I said, really, you know, Michael Jordan only grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina and played at the university of North Carolina for three years. He was the two time national player of the year and won a national championship. The freshman, like, is that like a hard job to use him to promote your products? I think she got transferred. Uh, you know, I heard a rumor that it might have been Iraq. It might have been Afghanistan after that comment. And, you know, <laughs> but the point is that, like, it wasn't so much. Michael was well known from the Olympics. He was popular. But the concept of using a team sport athlete as a national spokesperson, yeah. black or white was unheard of and there was nobody doing it. The NBA wasn't that popular and there was a tremendous level of resistance at the beginning. Obviously once we, once we sort of primed the pump and got him his first ground of deals with McDonald's, Chevy, Coca-Cola, 
you know, and people saw how great he was in the commercials and how great he was on the court, you know, the rest is history, but he needed to get a jump start, And, um, and that's, you know, that's what the first couple of years were about. And then of course, Nike, well, Nike was the first year and, and the documentary we're now, uh, in the middle of it. We've just seen episodes five and six. As I talked to you, it really showed your meetings with Nike that were like pulling teeth to get Michael to even take the meeting. And then of course the concept of Air Jordan was hatched. If you want to expound here, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Well, first of all, Michael wore Converse in college. Dean Smith was, you know, right. was one of the, the big schools, all Converse schools in college, Kentucky, Carolina. I mean, Converse owned, they were the Fisher shoe of the NBA. They were the Fisher shoe of the Olympics. Um, they, they were basketball and they had in their stable, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Dr. J, Isaiah Thomas, Bernard King, Rolando Blackman. I go on and on. They had basically everybody except Kareem and Marcus Johnson, who were the Adidas. Michael loved Adidas, and he became friendly with a guy you know well, Gary Stoken, who's the local yeah. rep in the Southeast. And he would give Michael Adidas, and when Michael wasn't allowed to wear him in practice or in the games, but when he could play on his own, he loved Adidas. Frank Cragle, who was the number two partner at ProServe for years um, and left to run Octagon, was the personal lawyer for the head of Adidas. Adidas, which is called Adidas in Europe, was founded by Adolf Dossler, whose nickname was Adi, Adi Dossler, Adidas, in, in the 30s. And his son, Horst, moved the company from Germany to France, to Lanarsheim, France. And Frank was his freaking personal lawyer. So at ProServe, we had Stan Smith, who has the number one all-time tennis shoe ever made with Adidas. We had Raul Ramirez with Adidas. We had... Yvonne Lendl with Adidas. We had the tennis players union and the ATP with Adidas. I mean, we had a ton of players, not just with Adidas for shoes. Lendl had Adidas for shoes, rackets, clothes, across the board, Voitech feedback. We had tons of clients, Jaime Fiol, you know, really important tennis clients. So we had a long-term relationship with, with the company. And so I called John Bolter, who was the head of international marketing, to tell him that, you know, Michael wanted to go with Adidas. I wanted to go with Nike, but Michael, so I expressed his desire and John said, look, David, you're going to ask us for a ton of money for this guy. The company is completely disorganized with horse death. He had died the year before and there was like four or five family members jostling for position. Who's going to run the company. They were competing with the American distributors and it was just, it was a mess. He said, we just, we can't even make you an offer. We can't make it. We can't make it work. Nike, by contrast, I had been out, I had developed a very, very close relationship with the head of marketing for Nike, who was a lawyer like us, named Rob Strasser. Mm-hmm. Rob looked like John Madden. He was about 6'3", 350, with a big <laughs> orange beard, a bear of a guy. I love the guy. And we developed such a close relationship that when the guys would come out before Michael, Al Wood, you know, whomever, I, he said, okay, what do you want for this guy? I said, Rob, he's the fourth pick. And I want a hundred thousand. It's okay. We have a deal. No negotiations. He trusted me. He knew I wouldn't abuse it. He knew I wasn't going to be shy by asking for a lot of money. So I'm out there in January, just visiting and trying to sign our first quarterback client, Boomer Siason. And Rob says to me, um, look, I just want you to know 
uh, we have a really close relationship. We have a really, you have a close relationship with both Georgetown and Carolina. And we would love, if either Michael Jordan or Pat Ewing come out, we'd love to sign them. Uh, I think I said like, oh, what a shocker. You, <laughs> you have an interest in the national player of the year and the most dominant college player probably since Will Chamberlain. God, I'm stunned. <laughs> you know, you must have an amazing talent scout. And, and obviously they did. They had an amazing talent scout in Sonny Vaccaro, but it wasn't like it was a shocker to suggest that you signed Michael Jordan, you know, who's the most exciting player in college basketball and who was a wing player. So we actually signed Boomer that day, Eddie. You'll get a kick. I don't know if I ever told you this. So Strasser had a famous, everyone has their own signature way to close a deal. You know, you shake hands and say, congratulations, whatever. Strasser, mm-hmm. the minute we shook hands, he always gave me the same line. Am I getting effed? That's what he said to me every <laughs> time. So I, I tell him, and he's talking about Jordan. I said, look, let's, new subject. I got a great guy for it. I got this brash New Yorker, blue-eyed, blonde-haired guy. He's got a big personality, 6'5", you know, and uh, you should sign him. He said, well, what do you want for him? I said, two years to 25000 He said, go ahead, you have a deal. We shook hands. And he said, am I getting effed? I said, look, relax. You're going to love this guy. It's like John McEnroe. He's really brash, got a great sense of humor. So we go to lunch. And in the middle of lunch, at a left field, he says to me, oh, you know, I forgot to ask you, this guy, Boomer, is he a guard or a forward? <laughs> and I look at him. I said, Rob, the guy's a freaking quarterback. Oh, he goes, God, am I getting effed? I said, relax, you're going to love the guy. <laughs> and, you know, Boomer made some commercials. He later became the first guy for the Reebok pump. But, like, so that's that's sort of the background. Like, I had a great relationship with Nike. And I knew Nike at this time was maybe, maybe a $30 billion company. They were tiny. Um, they didn't do much national advertising. They were primarily a track company. They had Sebastian Coe and, um, you know, they obviously had the famous runner who died, Steve Prefontaine, who was the mm-hmm. sort of the soul of the company. They had some basketball players. They had formed a club, a lot of guys on the Blazers, like Jeff Petrie. Um, Phil Chenier was an early Nike guy, mostly West Coast guys. And they were in basketball, but not really in a big way. Converse and, and uh, Adidas dominated. So when I told Michael that I wanted him we're going to visit all the companies. This is like college recruiting. We're going to pick six or seven companies. We're going to go visit them all and see, you know, what they can offer you. Not so much financially, but promotionally. He said, David, look, honestly, you know, it's been a long season in Carolina that I had to play in the Olympics for coach night. It was grueling and demanding. I'm really tired. I have zero interest in going to see Nike. Zero, not like 10%, you know, might have an interest. Now, Sonny and George Raveling, I love George Raveling, brag that each of them was the reason that Nike signed Michael. And I said, really? God, you guys were so, George spent the entire summer with him as the assistant coach on the Olympic team. And Sonny, in his own documentary, said he single-handedly signed Michael Jordan. I said, wow, that's interesting. He couldn't even get him to make a campus visit. And neither could I. And so I was frustrated. The very first thing, Andy, very first I asked him to do as his as his representative is to get on a plane and just take a visit. I didn't say you had a silent and he turns me down and I'm frustrated, you know, embarrassed. And so I went to his parents and I said, look, if we're going to work together, you know, over the next five to 10 years, you know, Michael can make any decision he wants as far as what shoe company wants to sign with, but he really needs to take a visit so we can evaluate. Is this a serious contender in, in, in the decision? 
And his mom winked at me, Dolores, who's a wonderful human being, and right. said, David, don't worry. She didn't say, I think I'll give you there. He might be there. I'll try to get. She said, don't worry. He'll be on the plane. And his parents were unbelievably great people. I mean, really fun people. They, they were great to be with. They were gracious. They were supportive. Um, they were very demanding of Michael. I mean, if you wonder how, how he became as competitive as he is, all you have to do is meet his parents. They were, they were amazingly into self-improvement. No matter hmm. what he did, they were loving and supportive. They pushed him to go to the next level. They never said, hey, that's great. Stop. You know, you've done enough. They constantly pushed him to improve himself, not just as a player, but as a, as a, as a, as a man. And they were they were amazingly great people, and they got him on the plane. We went out there, and uh, Sonny, my friend Sonny, opened the car door for the Jordans when they arrived, the, the limo. That's the, he said to Mrs. Jordan, welcome to Beaverton. That's the only word he said to Michael the entire day in every meeting. Um, and um, Strasser, to his credit, had prepared a video of Michael's highlights from both the Olympics and North Carolina. And he said it to the music. He said it to the music of the Pointer Sisters jump. Mm-hmm. He said it to the music of uh, Van Halen jump. I uh, wear my sunglasses. Night. It was a music videos were hardly in vogue at the time. They were just starting. And this video was phenomenal, except for one thing. Strasser couldn't get the damn machine to play the video. He's <laughs> sitting there literally. And he was like, it was like if someone had taken a garden hose and poured the water over his head, he couldn't have been sweating more. He's like dripping sweat. And Howard White, who was the only African-American executive from Nike to attend the meeting, was 45 minutes late. So Michael's sitting there, pissed off that he's at the meeting, waiting for this damn video. So finally the video started, and it was really amazing. He, he loved the video. And um, uh, then we go to the conference room. And Strasser presents in a line. He presents what I had asked him for, a line of shoes and clothes. He shows them prototypes of the shoes, T-shirts and hats. It was really, really impressive. Jordan does not crack a smile. He he looks like he's, you know, about to cry. I mean, he looks like he's about to scream. He's angry. And I'm dying because I know he's hating this. And and he's going to fire me when this is over. And his parents were enjoying it. And so at the end of the presentation, this is hilarious. They had done their homework and they found out that Michael loves cars. He bought his first BMW from Leaf uh, in, in North Carolina. And at the end of the presentation, Phil Knight walks into the conference room while Strasser's presenting. And Strasser reaches into his pocket and said, and if you come at Nike, he reaches in and, and Knight sort of knows Strasser's could do something crazy that he's going to be pissed off about he thinks he's giving him the keys to like a Porsche or something. And Phil literally, Andrew, clutches his heart. He, he He's trying to brace himself for, you know, an outrageous move by Strasser. And Strasser pulls out these two one-inch miniature model cars, Mercedes, and puts them on the table. It was hilarious. And so <laughs> the, the meeting finally ends, and they take us to dinner, some nice restaurant in Portland. And as when the, when the dinner ended, Michael barely said a word. I, I whispered in his ear and said, so like, you know, tell me, um, like, what'd you think? And he looks at me and he said, amazing. I don't want to go anywhere else. You could have blown me away. And wow. I realized, gosh, this 21 year old guy is really smart. 
and he's an amazing poker player. He didn't reveal a single emotion when they showed him his own shoes, his own clothes, highlights. I mean, guy was standing there completely poker faced, and that's you know that's how the Nike relationship got. So I'm amused when I see all these people taking credit, you know, for you know people say, hey, how come Sonny wasn't in the in the dock? And listen, I think Sonny did some amazing things for Nike in basketball with coaches. You know, it was his vision. And I want to give him his props. I mean, Sonny, Sonny's a character. He's a Damon Runyon character. But he, you know, he formed a whole marketplace, you know, to sign college coaches. And, um, you know, he's been around basketball his whole life. He's been hugely involved in the grassroots. But he was not in one negotiating meeting I ever attended with Strasser for his deal. He had no role in the, in the presentation when he came to Oregon. And I have no doubt that he recommended that they sign him. But, you know, it'd be like me recommending to Nike in 2003. Hey, look, I want to tell you a really well-kept secret. There's this guy in Akron, Ohio, <laughs> who I think if you sign him could really be good. His name is LeBron James. And then I ran around telling everyone, oh, yeah, Nike signed LeBron because I, I recommended it. Or tell him, like, last year, hey, there's this guy. You may not ever heard him from uh, from Duke named Zion Williamson, I think could be a right. you know, reasonably good prospect. You guys should take a look at it. I mean, the whole world, Michael was the two-time player of the year. It wasn't a great surprise, you know, that that he was an exciting player. No one knew he'd be as, that he'd reached the level of performance that he reached, but they knew he'd be exciting. They thought he'd, what they really thought he'd be, Andy, they thought he'd be like Dominic Wilkins, like a great dunker, mm-hmm. great, you know, individual player, but nobody thought that he'd be able to carry a team, forget about six championships to one. Was that the meeting where the Air Jordan name was hatched or was that later? No, no, that was later. That's so we're, we, so after that meeting, he now likes Nike. He sort of blessed the idea that he could be with Nike and Strasser comes to Washington. I'm going to say mid, mid August. It's about 95 degrees. Typical, you grew up in Washington, typical yeah. Washington day. And we're meeting in our office on 17th Street. And of course, they turn the air conditioning off for the weekends. So it's 95 <laughs> outside. It's about 105 inside. And Strasser is sweating even more than he was when he couldn't get the tape to run <laughs> in Portland. And he says, look, I know that you want a line of shoes and clothes. Like he's a tennis player. So like I have to ask you, what do you want to call the line? Now, you know this because you did both sports. When, yeah. you, when a player in sports has his own line of products, whether it's Tiger Woods golf clubs or Rory Baccaroy, Jordan Spieth, or it's Stan Smith's shoes or Roger Federer rackets, they call it either a signature product or an autograph product. It's right in the contract because it has a signature or autograph on the product so you know it's his. And so I said, Rob, what do you mean what do I want to call it? I want to call the line Michael Jordan. It's his signature. And Strasser shakes his head and said, no, David, we will not call, we're not going to make a line of shoes and clothes for a rookie basketball player, you know, who's not even the number one pick and call it Michael Jordan. I said, really? Why not? And he said, for two reasons. First, no one's going to believe that a 21-year-old rookie is sitting in his apartment in Northbrook, Illinois at night designing shoes and clothes. No one's going to believe that. That's okay. That makes sense. What's the second reason? He said the second reason is that, you know, at this time he had felt that American designers, whether it was 
Bill Blass, Oleg Cassini, Diane von Furstenberg, Christian Dior, who's not American, you know, all these famous designers were putting their names on a variety of products from sunglasses to beach chairs to cars, you know, anything you could think of to get royalties. And Strasser thought that this designer craze had run its course and people were not going to would not going to continue just buying labels. He was wrong. So I said, okay, I get it. Like, okay, so what do you want to call it? Oh, he said, no, 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 no. You want the line. You got to come up with a name, but it can't be Michael Jordan. I wanted to run across the room and strangle him. It was probably the most <laughs> outrageous thing I had ever, ever asked in business, you know, to have a play, a person, a personality, a celebrity, have their own line of products and not call it by their name was unheard of. And I was like steaming. And, you know, I got this inspiration literally within a minute, might've been 30 seconds. And I said, okay. I said, okay, big time. That wasn't what I said, but for the, you know, so we don't get bleeped out. Um, I said, we're going to call it Air Jordan. Air because you just invented this new Air. Okay. So, okay. So we're going to call it Air Jordan, you know, Air because you just invented this new technology for aerosols. And Michael plays in the air, sort of a double entendre. He loved it. Peter Moore, who's the graphic designer, sketched the first logo with the wings and the basketball. And the rest is history. And it was just, just happened. Like, in, in literally in the spur of a moment, the spur of the moment. And at that time, at that time, and I want you, know, you talked about what the world looked like, what was the landscape. Not only did Magic and Bird and Doc not have their own shoes, they, they weren't even doing commercials. There was no commercials, which they showed in the doc. That Those commercials came after Michael came out with the shoe. And Converse mm. had three or four or ten angry you know, superstars wondering why a rookie has, is doing commercials. And, and, and he wasn't. Now, back at Nike, there was no uh, shy at day back then. There was none of these great agencies they've hired since. So they make the first shoe, the black and red one. Yeah. Michael wears it to, pra- to practice, and the league immediately bans the shoe. They ban it. They say it doesn't conform with the team's uniform colors. And Strasser calls me up in a panic, and he says, God damn it. You know, we just paid him all this money. He can't even freaking wear the shoe. I said, I didn't even know it had been banned. I said, really, why not? He said, because the league told us that it doesn't conform with the uniform colors. I said, God, that's great. He said, really? What's great about it? I said, what's great about it? We're going to do a abandoned Boston commercial. So what the hell does that mean? I said, we're going to do a commercial that basically says these shoes are so special that the NBA banned them because it gives Michael a competitive <laughs> advantage. And we, and the first commercial he ever did, they pan him from, from head to toe. And they say like, in real serious, like I'm, I'm not messing up the dates, but like on October 15th, Nike came out with a revolutionary basketball shoe called Air Jordan. On you know October 27th, the NBA banned the shoe, and they had the dragnet, you know, dragnet famous show yeah. uh, with the, ch- the chisel sound when it makes it the show. They said, fortunately, the NBA can't ban you from wearing them. And the shoes, I mean, we couldn't have asked the NBA for a better intro than banning the shoes, you know. And they just started selling out the wazoo. And a couple of months go by, I'm back in Portland with Strasser having sushi and quite a lot of beer. And we do the second commercial. I said, I got a great idea. So what's that? I said, okay, Jordan's on the playground. 
asphalt, you know, outside metal rims, you know, chains under the basket, not you know, cords. And, uh, and the voice comes out and said, like, air, like air traffic control, flight 23, you're clear for takeoff. So boom, shoot the commercial was like steam coming out of his shoes and he takes off and dunks. And it was so much fun because Nike was an upstart. They weren't corporate. They were a bunch of Oregon guys who were entrepreneurial. You know, they weren't public yet. Um, there were very few restrictions and it was just oozing creativity, oozing creativity today. Everything is, is so big. They're a hundred billion dollar company. Everything is so corporate. I told Phil at a, at a function for coach K in New York about five years ago, I told Phil Knight, you know, if Michael came out 20 years later, we couldn't have done 80% of the things yeah. we did because you, you were so corporate, you wouldn't have allowed it. And, but back then we were all flying by the seat of our pants because there was no precedent and you couldn't say, how did magic do it? How did doc do it? How did, you know, Elijah one, you couldn't ask, no one had ever done it. No one. And so, yeah, it's so funny know, that Michael was reluctant and had to be uh, coaxed or pushed by his parents to take, even take the Nike meeting. And then he has become, you know, inextricably linked with Nike forever. Sure. And that leads me leads me to what we saw in the documentary the other night with the Olympics and winning the gold medal, and then of course the the uh, medal ceremony where he covered up the Nike logo. I know you're involved in that, and you saw some harsh language from Michael on the bus about Harvey Schiller and Reebok. Who who we started very thing. Harvey. Harvey's a very dear friend of mine, and his daughter yeah. actually worked for me, Erica, for three or four years. That's and right. he has, yeah. we have homes together at Kiwi. You know, I didn't even know Michael knew Harvey Schiller. Were you uh, around when that was going on? I mean, were you in what was, sure. what was your memory of, all, of that? I went, to I went to Barcelona for the Olympics. Uh, I was invited by Gatorade. I went for the, like the last four days, stayed on the NBC boat. It was really, really fun. And um, uh, when the issue came up, I said to Michael, he called up and said, there's no freaking way I'm going to wear a Reebok on the stage. And I said, look, you know, I understand, you know, I, I respect your position. Michael's incredibly brand loyal. Michael wouldn't sign an autograph. If you walked up to him with a Spalding basketball, which is a vicious shoot ball at the NBA and asked for autograph, he wouldn't sign it because he was a Wilson. You walked up with a Converse shoe, it is, he wouldn't sign it. He's an incredibly, incredibly loyal individual. And so I knew that this was going to be an issue. And so I said to him, look, let me make a suggestion. I think you should wear the uniform, but cover up the logo with the American flag. I said, no one can criticize you, you know, for being patriotic on the medal stand. And that way you could say you wore the, the uniform, but you don't have to display the logo. Mm -hmm. And which is exactly what he did. And it was the right thing to do. You don't want to have a controversy over, you know, over not wearing the uniform. And at the same time, when you've your own when you have your own line of products, it's pretty you know it's pretty hard to ask somebody to promote you know to promote Reebok when 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 you were Nike, um, and when you were your own company in your own division of Nike, you know Brad Jordan. So uh, I think it was a good solution, and you know it's one of the things I loved about Michael is that he listened. He was really smart. He made his own decisions, but at the beginning when he was learning the ropes about sports business and sports marketing. I looked at my job 
Andy is teaching Michael. You know, my mom, as you know, my mom was a teacher. Right. I have a, I have a pedagogical instinct in me. And what I enjoy the most in the business isn't making deals. You know, I enjoy teaching guys. And so they did a, a doc on me on ESPN a couple of years ago called Agent of Change. And Michael's the first guy on the doc. And he comes on for like 10 seconds and he says, David taught me the business, taught me how to use my name and my logo. That to me is the biggest compliment he could pay me, you know, and I love him for it. I mean, because, you know, I couldn't teach him how to play. I couldn't teach him how to shoot, you know, but I could give him an insight into the things that were coming at him in business. So that now when he's 57 years old and he owns his own team and he owns basically his own shoe company and he owns his own car dealerships, he owns a line of restaurants, you know, he's in a, he has advisors, but he's in a really way better position to make good business decisions because he's been doing it since he's 21 years old. He's been doing it for 36 years. Really, really hope you enjoyed listening to part one of my two-part interview with David Falk. That part, of course, all about recruiting, all about getting Michael Jordan and David's strong relationship with coaches like Coach Krzyzewski and, of course, Coach Smith and, most importantly, Coach John Thompson of Georgetown. For next week, we'll get into Michael's comments about politics in the Harvey Gann election in Michael's home state of North Carolina We'll get into the gambling, his relationship with teammates and how hard he was, Scottie Pippen contract, and seeing a side of Michael that we've never seen before, all in part two of our series with David Falk. Finally, a word from our sponsor, Bet Online. You know, there's no NBA, NHL, or MLB. You might think there's nothing to bet on. You would be wrong. And if you're a UFC fan, UFC 249 is May 9th. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast. You can hear former MMA stars Charles Sonnen and BetOnline's Dave Mason talk about all things UFC. Visit BetOnline. Don't forget that promo code PODCAST1. Take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. Sign up for a free account. Make sure you use the promo code PODCAST1, all caps. Your online sportsbook experts, BetOnline. And that'll do it for this special edition. First of two parts with David Falk on the Business of Sports podcast. Really appreciate all of you that follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt and any comments or rankings on Apple Podcasts are truly appreciated. And we'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. All right, now we are joined by Dave Mason from betonline.ag. Dave, we can finally talk about some fights. UFC 249 is going to happen. Let's just start with that, man. Is it does it feel good to get back to some normalcy? Oh, absolutely. And you know, as I've told you before, UFC is one of my favorite sports, so uh makes it even better. Been waiting a long time here for some real sports action, and it's a great card too. And three cards within a week it's looking like. So uh we're excited. Hey, Dana was just talking about adding a fourth. I mean, I mean if he adds a fourth, not only is that four cards to look forward to, but on an average of ten fights per card, I mean if you're a fight fan, you got a busy month ahead. Oh, absolutely. I, I can't wait. Finally put my Netflix machine on the back burner and watch 
watch some sports again. I'm, I can't wait. All right, well, let's start uh, Let's start with the main event. I mean, it's going to be for an interim world title fight. You're talking about Justin Gaethje versus, uh, versus Tony Ferguson. Before we get in the odds of it, this fight is different now that it's May 9th as opposed to April 18th. In this way, Justin Gaethje accepted that fight on very short notice. And even though he was training and kind of keeping his weight down, it's totally different to have a signed contract and really be pushing and motivated. The mere fact that they've given him three extra extra weeks to train that does change how this fight looks do you agree no 100 percent. you know those short notice fights are always a tough one for you fighters obviously and we recognize that the odds and the results when the habib fight got canceled and he had to pull out and and they replaced him with justin gagey i wasn't too disappointed so i sure i want to see habib versus el kukui no doubt but i mean you know, from a fan standpoint, just a just a good old slugfest. It's not going to get any better than this one, man. I, I I can't wait. You know, we had Tony Ferguson at minus one seventy two favorite. He's what won won twelve fights in a row. I, and Justin Gagey off a three fight win streak. He's a plus one forty seven underdog. So I I can't wait for this one. Just as a fan of the sport and a fan of competition, that it doesn't get any better than this. There's no way this fight can be boring. It's impossible. Dana White just did an interview. He was promoting this fight. And he he said, I guarantee you this will be the most violent fight you've ever seen. And that was a very interesting word. I've, I've never heard him use that word. So I was sitting back and pondering, what exactly does that mean? And do I agree? And you know what? I think he used the right word. This is going to be chaos and violence in a controlled area for up to 25 minutes. No, absolutely. I mean, you look at Ferguson with those elbows. I mean, his pointy elbows and his nonstop pace moving forward. Then Justin Gagey and hit that, that how he hits so hard and he goes in there and balls to the wall. I mean, it's not going to be any kind of strategy feeling each other out stuff. These guys are going to be going at it, swinging for the fences. Both guys are going to be bleeding. The, the mat's going to be soaked with blood. I, I can't wait. All right, so give me a line on it. What's Bet Online thinking about this fight? I imagine they're favoring Tony. Yep, Tony's minus 172. The take back on Gagey is plus 147. That's all? Uh, that's all? Yeah. Negative once that's close. That's close it's, odds. Yeah. I mean, it's gone down and up a little bit. It was, you know, down to about minus 150 the other day. So it's going up and down. You know, Gage, he just hits so darn hard, and he's on a three-fight win streak. He's hot. You know, it's it's going to be one of those fights. I think it comes down to cardio and Tony. Uh, and Tony gets hit, too. He, he's, he's awesome. He's one of my favorite fighters. But he, he has been known to get take take a couple hits to the face. So if Gagey can catch him, you, you don't know. You know he's been knocked down plenty, Ferguson. So, I, but I think Ferguson takes it in deep water with that relentless cardio, and that that's what I'm counting on for a you know fourth, fifth round stoppage. All right, so we got we got another title fight. The current champion, Triple C. Henry Cejudo is going to take on former champion Dominic Cruz. You go first on this one, but then you got to let me give you my opinion because I think I have an interesting take. Take it away. Oh, good. Um, you know, Dominic Cruz may be the best fighter at that weight class ever, arguably. Henry Cejudo, man, the way he's poured it on the last couple of years, he's just become, you know, he's always had that potential being the a former Olympic gold medalist, and uh, he, he's really put it together the last year and a half, two years since he beat uh, Demetrius Johnson. Oh, boy. I mean, I, I have to... 
Sejudo is a minus two twenty five favorite, and I'm going to be on him. I mean, it, it, Cruz, it's he's been off. His last win was almost four years ago. I mean, that's just such a long time. And he, you know, he came back. He fought those three fights. He looked okay, but he didn't look like it, the dominant Dominic Cruz of of old. So you know that that four years off is just, is just too much for me. I'm I'm going to be on Sejudo and who's peaking and he looks better than ever. All right, Dave, I am not ready to part with my money. I'm not even ready to publicly predict an upset here. However, this has all the makings of an upset. This is a stylistic problem to the highest of levels for Henry. Look, you can tell me on paper that Henry's a better wrestler, and you would be right. He was the Olympic champion. He was the greatest wrestler alive. But you can't show me a whole bunch of his fights where he's ever effectively used his wrestling. I only bring that up because with Dominic's footwork and Dominic's ability to control range, to peck away at you, in many ways, I think you could agree with me that wrestling is not going to be the solidifier in this contest. So if wrestling's not, that only leaves the striking, and Dominic Cruz has only been outstruck one time in his life, and it was a huge shock. So if we're to use history, use the body of work of these two athletes, and agree that there's largely going to be stand-up, that's Dominic's world. In my opinion, this is all the makings for potential upset. That's all I'm saying. I love it. Opposite sides. Let's do it. Okay, so I don't know if you guys are taking action on this one, but I'm going to assume you are because it's Engano versus Rosenstrike. That was scheduled to be a main event, so I'm guessing that Bet Online is looking at it. Am I right? Oh, we have all odds on all the fights. Absolutely. Nagano's currently minus 285 favorite. Tape back on Rosenstrike is plus 240. And holy God, is, is this going to be... <laughs> what a matchup this is. I mean, talk about heavy hitters to... Just giants of men, two big heavyweights. I can't wait for this one. Uh, you know, Rosenstrike, he, he's got a great chin. I don't think anybody hits harder than Naganyu, but Rosenstrike has a heavy chin. And so uh, yeah, there's some live dog action there, plus 240. Sometimes it just comes down to who lands that big shot first. Uh, you know, and Naganyu, I, I sometimes question his cardio. So if, if he swings himself, punches himself out early and, and it's going into two Second or third round, uh, I, I, I favor Rosenstrike there. I think he can keep moving forward like he did his last fight. And see, that's interesting you bring that up because this is another fight. Because of the change of date, it changes the complexity of the fight. This was originally going to be a main event, which means it was originally going to be yep. a potential of 25 minutes. Now that it's down the card, it's got a maximum of 15 minutes. And to your point about Engano, who does have a little bit of cardio issues, I mean, that's just a reality when you're packing that much muscle around, in many ways, the lower placement favors Engano. Absolutely. I mean, the five-round fight, absolutely. I mean, I don't think those guys can make it in the fourth or fifth round, but the three-round fight absolutely uh, favors Nagano more than it would in a five-round fight. Either way, he's he's the uh, he's a legitimate favorite. But I just like that. I like that live dog money on plus two forty on Rosenstreich. All right, let's talk about the rematch. Uh, Anthony Pettis, Showtime, taking on the Cowboy. Mm-hmm. Donald Cerrone is, is is this too much too soon for Cowboy? I think it is. I mean, especially with his comments that came out the other day where he wasn't mentally into the the, the McGregor fight a few months ago. He didn't look good, and, and he didn't fight well, and, and he confirmed it this week. I don't know if that was just him talking whatever, but he, he's fought so much, man. I mean, there, there's no tougher guy in the sport, but he's just coming to an end i think you know you see it with these guys sometimes and and he he, he's just been on a he hasn't won much lately and uh 
Pettis, you know, I've never been a big Pettis fan, but he he's impressed me the last the last few fights. He's one of those guys who I think had always had all the talent, but I kind of questioned, you know, his, his mindset and, and heart sometimes. And again, heart for a fighter because I don't have half the heart this guy does. But he's 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 looked a lot 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 tougher, and he's been in some real wars lately. So I just think Pettis deserves favor. He's minus one thirty six right now. I'll take back on Cerrone, he's plus one sixteen, but. I don't know. Cerrone's just has not looked good the last few fights. Tough as hell, sure, but but he's he's going down. I think. I went back and I rewatched that first fight, Dave. It wasn't competitive in the least. Pettis came out. He hit him with what they called a kick to the body, but it kind of, it almost looked like a knee, like more of the knee hit. I mean, it's just a really hard shot that would stop a fight. And Cerrone was too tough to stop. He tried to push through it, but it was all downhill from there. Pettis kind of peppered him with a couple of kick. Uh, punches rather came back to that exact same shot that exact same kick on the exact same yep. part of the body i had a weird takeaway even though i can tell you as a guy that just rewatched this that was not close that was not competitive it was still one of those nights where you look at pettis and you go good job congratulations but i need to see that again you made that look so easy that i'm not sure that my eyes are telling me that tr- i need to see that fight again is that too big of a stretch for me no, I mean, let, let's run it back, right? You know, it, it both are definitely past their prime. And that was right before I think Pettis won the belt, I believe. So that's right when he was at, at his peak. But yeah, let's let's run it back. Two guys are legends and, and um, let, let's run it back. You know, I, I just think Pettis has a little bit more in him right now. And Cerrone is, is just, he's been getting beat up too. You know, he's he's been taking a beating too. And I don't like to see that in these fighters once they start losing that chin and start going down a lot. No, I hear you. Look, as a fighter, you're never done with this sport, but you will wake up one day and this sport is done with you. And I, I don't know that either one of these guys is in that spot. I don't wish that for him, but that is a reality that might might unfold in front of us on May 9th. Absolutely. We'll find out. And it's a great card. I can't wait. Dave, I appreciate you, buddy. I miss talking to you. I'm glad we finally have something to catch up on. Thank you, pal. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Take care.